Luke chapter 11, beginning from verse 14. I'll lead us in prayer as we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you speak to us by your Spirit through your Word. And we ask now, Lord, that um, as you have been speaking to us, as your Word was read, you will continue to do that now as we, as we consider it together. May you uh, enable me to preach your Word rightly in your Spirit's power. And may you work in each one of our hearts uh, by that Spirit, drawing us to Christ, uh, opening our eyes to Him and causing us to love and obey Him. We ask this in His name. Amen. Well, Jesus was on His way to Jerusalem, where He would be crucified. He'd been calling people to follow Him. Uh, some of them did, and others were not ready uh, to pay the price. He had sent 72 of His disciples out to preach the kingdom in various villages, to, uh, and they healed the sick, and they, and they cast out demons. And when they got really excited about the fact that they had authority over demons, he told them, well, don't get too excited about that. Don't rejoice in that. Instead, rejoice in something much better, that your names are written in heaven. Jesus also had been confronted by a lawyer who thought that obeying the law would indeed get him eternal life. And you remember, Jesus agreed. But he showed that the requirements of the law were such that sinful people like us would, would never make it. On the other hand, as he taught his disciples about prayer, he also taught that we can receive the Spirit simply by asking our Heavenly Father in faith. For those who ask, receive. Those who seek, find. And to those who knock, the door will be opened. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, where he would be crucified, rise, and ascend as King. And he'd been teaching his disciples about the kingdom. The passage we are looking at today is still part of that travel narrative. And it comes directly after Jesus promises that God will give the Holy Spirit uh, to those who ask him. Uh, the passage we're looking at can actually be divided into three sections. And each of those sections culminates in a statement from Jesus. We see a statement in verse 23, at the end of verse 26, and again at the end of verse 28. And each of, that, each of those statements will confront us with a question that we need to ask ourselves. Are we with Jesus or against Him? Are we better off because of Jesus or worse off? Do we hear the Word of God and keep it? Well, the first section of our passage is from verses 14 to 23. And in verse 14, Jesus is, is casting out a demon that is mute. Now, that is a demon that causes a man not to be able to speak. Uh, there may be all kinds of reasons for muteness, right? Brain injury, stroke, psychiatric illness, damage to vocal cords, intellectual disability, deafness, all kinds of reasons why someone may be mute. Not everyone who is mute has a demon. But this man's muteness was caused by a demon. And we know that because in verse 14, when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. And the Bible says that the people marveled. They say, wow, this is amazing. This is fantastic. This is mind-blowing. They are so impressed. But just being impressed with Jesus is not the same as trusting Him. You can be fascinated with Jesus and still be an unbeliever. In fact, these guys were, were so impressed with what Jesus was doing that they, they began to speculate about how He was doing it. 
And some of them say in verse 15, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. So they're claiming that Jesus' power comes from the dark side. You see, Beelzebul uh, was a Jewish name for the devil, the, the, the spiritual being who, who leads rebellion against God. Uh, it was originally the name of a Canaanite god, which meant Prince Baal. Uh, but by the time of Jesus, the Jews were using it to refer to Satan, the chief of demons. And so they were saying Jesus is a sorcerer. And that belief seemed to be held by a number of Jews who were critical of Jesus. In fact, the Talmud, which was compiled in the, between the 2nd and 5th centuries AD uh, from the Jewish tradition and the writing of the time, uh, they showed us what the Jews at the time thought about Jesus. And it said, Jesus the Nazarene practiced magic and deceived and led Israel astray. Uh, and that echoes what their ancestors were saying here. He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Not that they can't deny his miracles, they're there, but they attribute it to the wrong power. And so they say that Jesus is bad. Others can't decide which side they're on. Uh, and so in verse 16, they, they, they keep testing him. They, they kept seeking from him a sign from heaven, which is actually quite bizarre. Because if they really had their eyes open, they would have realized that Jesus has just performed a great sign. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 35, verse 6, when God comes to save his people, one of the things that happens is the tongue of the mute sings for joy. They don't need a sign. They've just had one. But they want signs on demand, as if Jesus has to do what they say and prove himself in their way, which is simply not appropriate if he is God come to save his people. So some people are saying that Jesus is an evil magician using the powers of the dark side and others unreasonably demanding a sign from him to prove himself to them when actually they have what, everything they need. So how does Jesus respond? Well, in verse 17, we read that Jesus knows their thoughts and he answers them. And he does it in three parts. First of all, he shows the claim of those who say he is bad is... It's actually absurd. Verse 17, he says, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? You see, Jesus knows that Satan has a kingdom, he has a domain, and in his kingdom he's keeping people in bondage. And by casting out this demon, Jesus is breaking that bondage. He's releasing his captive. And not only this man, he's been doing it with many people uh, across, the, across the land. In fact, he's multiplied the effort by giving authority to those 72 disciples to go into all different villages all around the place. Now, what sense would it make for the devil to give his power to a human being to go and ransack the kingdom of the demons? Jesus is delivering people from Satan's power. He's rescuing them. He's getting them out. How can they say he's in league with Satan? Satan may be evil, but he's not a fool. He's not going to destroy his own kingdom. I imagine Arsenal and Manchester United are playing against each other. Right? And someone accuses one of the Arsenal players of taking bribes from Manchester United. Right? But, but when you watch the match, this very player seems to be playing really well against Manchester United. You thought he was, if you thought he was secretly on Man U's side, you might think, okay, like he's just playing along a little bit to, to avoid suspicion, but he's... He's not stupid enough to, you know, he's not stupid enough to stand there and just shoot his own goal all the time, right? Everyone will know, all right? But then this guy keeps on scoring goal after goal after goal 
against Man U. And eventually they're going to say, no, can't be, can't be. No one is foolish enough to, to, to bribe a player to thoroughly defeat them. And those who are saying that, that Jesus was empowered by Satan couldn't possibly write. That saying that J Satan is giving him the power to, to defeat him over and over and over again. Satan power empowers people to fight against him. What's, what's the point in that? Even Jose Marino, the Manchester United manager, knows that you don't pay people to score goals against you. How much more does Satan know that if his kingdom divided against itself, it cannot stand, it will be ruined. Jesus and his disciples have been destroying Satan's work. They can't be empowered by Satan to do that. But, but Jesus has a second point. Uh, in verse 19, he says, And if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For, oh, sorry, uh, verse 19, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Right? One of my school teachers used to say that every time you point one finger, you've got three fingers pointing back at you. Right? And that's exactly the case here, isn't it? Jesus, the, the Jews did exorcism as well. If Jews did exorcisms, why don't they accuse the other Jews of being in league with Beelzebub? You, you've got to be consistent in your slander. But there's also a third point. There was, you see, a big difference between Jesus' exorcism and theirs. Their exorcisms were probably more elaborate and more protracted, in fact, probably more magic-like than Jesus' simple command to the demons which they obey. So they're ne not nearly as successful. If they were, then the crowds wouldn't be so impressed with Jesus, would they? Jesus seems to be able to do it effortlessly, with, with incredible authority and ease. Now, if he's not in league with the demons, which we've seen he can't be, then this must mean that he is far, far, far more powerful than they. But if he is far, far, far more powerful than they, this can only mean that he is doing this with the power of God. And so listen to what Jesus says in verse 20. But if by the finger of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In the Old Testament, when God was bringing his plagues on Egypt in judgment, the Egyptian magicians tried to copy him. And they succeeded in imitating the first plague and then the second plague by their secret arts. But with the third plague, they couldn't do it. And what did they say? They said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. God can do far more and much better than the practitioners of the dark eyes. And Jesus is doing far, far better than this Jewish exorcist. He, he's working his miracles here in God's power, by the finger of God. And if Jesus is working his miracles by the finger of God, if God is the one who is opening the mouth of the mute, well, then that is a sign of the kingdom. God has come to save and rule his people in the person of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus comes to the fourth and final point in this section. He, he shows the folly of what the Pharisees claim by, by clarifying what he's actually doing. And he does it in verse 21 by getting his listeners to imagine 
a fully armed, strong man. Right? Think, of, think of a character you might see in the movies, right? A big guy with a big muscles, machine gun, you know, a bit like that, right? <laughs> now, this strong man lives in his house, right, and he's guarding his possessions, and there's no way a petty thief's gonna come and try and rob the place. Right? You're looking for a few bucks to buy drugs, that's the last house you're gonna try and break into. But then there is a hero who is even stronger. We'll call him the stronger man. Maybe he looks a little bit like this. <laughs> the stronger man is able to defeat the strong man. He takes away his gun and he steals whatever the strong man has been guarding. Well, Jesus says in verse 21, he says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace or mansion, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. And that's what Jesus has been doing. Satan is like the strong man and Jesus is like the stronger one. He's taking away his armor, all his power. He's plundering Satan's big house, releasing people from his clutches. People like this, this demon, who, with, 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 with this man with the demon that had made him mute. But that victory is just a foretaste of an even bigger victory. The release of the person, people like this, like this, like this demonized man is, is actually a pointer to an even bigger release. For you see, Ordinary people, like you and me, were also captives in the kingdom of darkness before we were rescued by Jesus. We weren't demonized like this man, but we were still in the devil's clutches in a, in a different way. A Colossians 1 uh, tells us that we were formerly in the domain of darkness. We were held captive by the devil in, that, in his sphere, uh, diagrammatically on the left-hand side under his influence, part of his kingdom, even when we didn't realize it. But on the cross, Jesus, the stronger man, defeated the devil. He did it by paying the penalty of our sin on our behalf. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 uh, says that God canceled the record of the debt, nailing it to the cross. That is, Christ himself took the punishment that we deserve, uh, the legal punishment for our sin. And so because our sins have been forgiven, our slate is wiped clean, then, well, the powers of evil have no hold on us. He's disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Jesus, the stronger man, has won victory over Satan and all his cronies on the cross. He's, he's taken away his arms and, and now he's taking away his possessions. And as we, believers in Christ, well, we are the spoil, aren't we? That Christ is taking from the devil. And every time someone puts their faith in Christ, that's, that's Jesus taking spoil from the defeated strong man. As Colossians 1.13 put it, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. And, and you know, when the strong man takes away the possession, the stronger man takes away the possession of the strong man, in verse 22 of our passage, he doesn't just keep what he takes. It says he divides or he distributes the spoil. And what does that mean? Well, we can't tell from this passage alone. 
but the Bible later picks up this imagery in Ephesians 4, uh, where the, the risen, victorious Christ brings back captives in his victory parade. And, and these captives, the, the spoils of the conquest, are the people that is taken from the enemy. And what does he do with them? He gives gifts. That is, he gives gifts to his church. He gives them as gifts to his church. People like you and me who have been taken from Satan are distributed to the church to serve Christ there. And that is our role. Jesus defeated the devil. He is rescuing his captives and dividing the spoil by putting them to work in different ways in different places for his kingdom. So if we are rescued by him, then we, we must serve him. We must join in the process of, of ransacking the home of the of a strong man that has been defeated and, and taken captives. For friends, there, there is a spiritual war, and there are only two sides. Jesus says in verse 22, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. See, there were people in Jesus' day who accused him from being from Beelzebul, and they were clearly against him. There were people like his disciples who followed him wherever he went. Well, they're clearly for him. But there were many people who seemed to be neutral. Some people may be saying, well, I'm not really interested in this kind of thing. Or I'm not I'm a bit too busy to bother. And there were those who were fascinated but not committed, seen his miracles but wouldn't pledge themselves to him, but instead keep on testing him, asking him for signs. And Jesus says, actually, if you're not with me, you're against me. You may be sympathetic, but you're still on the wrong side. You may be interested, but until such point as you put your trust in me as your king, you're still a captive of the strong man, and like it or not, you're still on his side. Are you with Jesus? Have you been rescued by him from Satan and sin and death and, and put to his service? Are you gathering with him? Are you bringing captives from the kingdom of darkness into his life? Or are you against him? Are you scattering? Actually working against the release of captives, whether consciously or without even realizing it. You might be explicitly speaking against Jesus, saying he's bad or he doesn't exist or whatever. Or he may be sympathetic, but finding excuses not to follow him. Like asking for more signs when God has already given you the ultimate sign in the resurrection of Christ. Which side are you on? Because with Jesus, we, we cannot be neutral. We're either serving him and helping others into his kingdom, or we are scattering. Our influence, consciously or not, works against their inclusions. Are you with Jesus or against him? Well, the answer to this question will determine the answer to the next question, which is raised by the next part of our passage in verse 24 to 26. Are you better off because of Jesus or worse off? You see, it's actually possible for us to be helped by Jesus in some way, but not really be on his side. And if that is the case, then we end up being spiritually worse off than if we'd never met him at all. 
Jesus has just driven this evil spirit from a man, so he illustrates this by giving some very interesting information from the spirit realm that otherwise we would never have had. Uh, look what he says in verse 24. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless place seeking rest, and, and finding none, it says, I'll return to my home from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order, and then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of the person is worse than the first. Well, that's a, that's a good lesson, isn't it, for anyone who is involved in exorcisms, right? Ah, now, evil spirits are still around today. We mustn't underestimate them, although we mustn't overestimate them either. Now, if someone is truly in Christ's kingdom, then there's no way they can be possessed by an evil spirit because well, they've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness and they've been placed in the kingdom of the sun. They are safe. Now, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 20 talks about Christ and he says, God, God raised him from the dead, seated him in his right hand in the heavenly place, far above all rule, authority, and power and dominion. And then a few verses later in chapter 2, in chapter 2 verse 6, the Spirit tells us, next slide, chapter 2 verse 6, that God has raised us with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. So if we are in Christ, then, then we are really safe. But without Christ, people may be vulnerable. They are already in the kingdom of darkness in a more general sense, and oh, what if they dabble with the occult or with magic or with spirits? Who knows what might happen to them? And so we sometimes hear of people being demon-possessed. Now, of course, sometimes it's wrong diagnosis and something else is really going on, but, but sometimes it might be right, and, and someone might ask us to pray for their deliverance, and if that's the case, we can pray in the name of Jesus that God would set them free. But let me say, if you have prayed for someone and an evil spirit has departed from them, you have not finished your job. Because unless they put their trust in Christ, then they're not really delivered, are they? They, they may not have the evil spirit anymore, but they're, they're still in captivity in the bigger sense. They're still in the kingdom of darkness. They're still under the clutches of the devil. They're still headed for eternal doom. And Jesus says here, they're vulnerable, vulnerable to being possessed again. And if this happens, then their last state is worse than their first. You see, what the demon-possessed man needs is, is what everyone really needs. They need to hear the gospel. They need to hear of the stronger man who defeated the devil at the cross by dying for our sins. They need to hear that he is the risen king who calls them to join in his kingdom. They need to repent of their sin and trust in Jesus so they wouldn't be saved just from one demon but from the, from the kingdom of darkness and become part of the kingdom of God's Son, and so receive forgiveness and eternal life. So I don't know if anyone here has been exorcised before, but if that's you, then, then, then make sure you repent and believe, because getting rid of the demon that haunted you and controlled you, oh, that might be a spectacular thing, but it's far, far, far more important that you come to trust in Jesus, that His Holy Spirit comes into you, that you belong to Him, because if you don't, then, well, you might come back and bring all kinds of other demons and you'll be worse off for your encounter with Jesus, not better. And that's not just true for individuals. It's true for the people of Jesus' generation as a whole. 
Jesus and his disciples had been delivering many people from the power of Satan. He was uh, releasing people from all different towns who had been held in his clutches. But the nation Israel as a whole didn't put her trust in Jesus. She didn't turn to him as king. She rejected him and would crucify him. And her last day would be worse than the first. And the same principle applies not just in the area of demon possession, but in all kinds of other areas. I wonder if there's anyone here whom Jesus has helped in some way. Might have done something in your life. It might have healed you of something. Might have delivered you of something. Might have solved some problem. But you know, that's not the main thing. Jesus cast out evil spirits, but if people didn't follow him, they would end up worse than if he never did. Well, don't let that happen to you. Don't play the fool with Jesus. Don't just use him to get what you want. He won't let you do that. He actually came to save you from something far worse than whatever problem it was that, that brought you to him first. He came to save you from sin and death and the devil and hell. And he's the only one who can. Because he's the one who is both God and man and made that sacrifice for your sins and lives as the glorious king. You must turn to him in trust and obedience. Otherwise, you'll be worse off in the end because you've got even less excuse now for failing to accept him as your Lord. Well, how do you know if you really are with Jesus? How do you know if you really are in his kingdom, that you, that you really are under his blessing? Well, Luke helps us in the third and final part of our passage by recording an interaction between Jesus and a woman in the crowd who had been listening to all this. Because as Jesus is saying all this, a, a woman in the crowd calls out a blessing. She interjects. She, she's not heckling him. She, she's praising him. Uh, she's doing it indirectly, though. She says in verse 27, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nurse. Right? The lady's probably a mother herself, and she thinks, what a blessing it would be to have a son like Jesus. Right? And it's like saying, you know, Yo, you're so good. How good it must have been to be your mother. Right? What a privilege it would have been to, to, to have been the one to give birth to you and nurse you and bring you up. And, and that's, that's kind of right, isn't it? Mary herself says in Luke 148 that from now on all generations will call me blessed because God has done such great things for me. He's been so merciful to me, so kind to me. And she is blessed. That, that's right. But there's more to it because when Jesus says, when the lady says, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nurse, how does Jesus respond? Well, he says in verse 28, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, Jesus is not having a go at Mary, but he's showing us that just as there is a bigger captivity than the captivity of the demonized man, there is a bigger blessing than the blessing of being his mother. And that's the blessing of being someone who hears the word of God and keeps it. In the Old Testament, God said to the people of Israel, you shall keep my commandments and do them. But Israel failed to keep God's law. Jesus, the true Israel, always obeyed his heavenly Father. He heard the word of God. Remember, when he's 12 years old, there he is in the temple, listening, asking questions. When he's tempted by the devil, 
He keeps quoting Old Testament scripture in order to resist. He consciously and deliberately fulfilled the Old Testament as he said he would. He never sinned, he never disobeyed. He perfectly did what our Old Testament reading from Psalm 119 described. He heard God's word, he loved it, he kept it in his heart. He's the ultimate blessed one. But it's not just talking about himself here, is he? Hearing the word of God and keeping it is a, is a blessing for us as well. For the people of Jesus' day, to hear the word of God and to keep it would have meant to listen to Jesus, to trust his word, and to follow him. For the words that Jesus spoke were indeed the word of God. And so people like Mary, Martha's sister, uh, we saw a few weeks ago, sitting at the Lord's feet, listening to him, she is blessed. As for all who listened to Jesus and kept his word. Well, what does it mean for us today to listen to God's Word? Well, the Bible talks about God's Word in, in three different ways. Uh, Jesus Christ Himself is the Word of God. And so to listen to the Word of God is to listen to Jesus. Christ comes to us in the Gospel, the message that He is Lord, that He died for our sins, that He rose again. The Gospel is the Word of God. And so to listen to the Word of Gospel, the gospel, gospel is to listen to the Word of God. And the gospel comes to us in the scriptures. And the scripture itself is the word of God. And so to listen to the word of God is to listen to the Bible. Listen to the word of God and keep it. It's to listen to Christ, to listen to the gospel, listen to the Bible. And so we read the scriptures, we listen to them, we, 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 some, we listen to other people read them, we, we study them, we hear sermons based on them, and we do so in a gospel-centered, Christ-centered way. And we do that day by day, week by week, because we want to hear God's Word. But it's not enough to hear God's Word. It's not enough to memorize God's Word. It's not enough to know God's Word. Bible study is never an end in itself. We are to hear God's Word and keep it. The Bible always points us to Christ in the Gospel. And so, keeping God's Word, first and foremost, means trusting personally in Him. It means knowing Him as our Savior, relying on His death on our behalf for our salvation. It means knowing Him as our Lord, that the King who we trust to lead us by His Spirit through this Word. And if Jesus is our King, then that means that we are committed to obeying His Word no matter what. And so hearing God's Word and keeping it means not only going to Christ in His Gospel, in the Bible for salvation, but looking to the same Christ in the same gospel, in the same Bible, to teach us how to live and love. And with the hope of the Holy Spirit, we seek to obey. And we do that day by day, month by month, year by year, because we are on Jesus' side, because He is our King, because we are in His kingdom, because He has rescued us from the devil's clutches to be His. And we belong to Him. For those who are with Him, those who are in His kingdom, those who are on His side, are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. And there is nothing better than being part of this kingdom. There is nothing better, not even the privilege of being the mother of Jesus Himself. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it.
So friends, as we conclude, let me remind you again what Jesus has said to us today and the questions we need to ask ourselves in response. Verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Are you with Jesus or are you against him? Verse 26, the last state of the person is worse than the first. Are you better off because of Jesus or worse off? Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Do you hear the word of God and keep it? It may be that today some of us have realized that actually we're on the wrong side because we don't actually hear the word of God and keep it. And maybe we've opposed Jesus. Maybe we've just put off trusting him, making excuses that we need more proof when actually he's given us all that we need. So what can we do? Well, we cannot save ourselves from the devil. We need a stronger man to do that. And we need his Holy Spirit to change our hearts so that we truly love Jesus and listen to his word and keep it. And remember what Jesus said. We'll receive that spirit by asking our Heavenly Father in faith. For those who ask, receive. Those who seek, find. And to those who knock, the door will be open. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your Son, uh, the Lord Jesus, came into this world to destroy the works of the evil one. We thank you that on the cross he defeated the devil, and that having done that, he continues to plunder his possessions. And thank you that we have been taken from him and be transferred into the kingdom of your Son. Thank you so much for that, Lord. And Father, we pray for each and every person gathered here today that each of us would be people who are with Jesus on his side, who are better off because he has rescued us and given us the gift of eternal life. We pray this will be true for all of us. And so, Father, if there's anyone here who is not yet with Jesus, Please, would you work in their hearts that they may trust you, ask from you, and receive the Holy Spirit, that they too may be people who are rescued from Satan's clutches and know the blessing of hearing your word and keeping it. And we ask this in the name of the stronger man, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.